Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. The Product Startup, episode 15. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, helping you turn ideas into successful products step-by-step with your host, Philip Valitza. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast. In the last episode, we talked to Mickey Swartzel, who, along with her husband, owns a small business based out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, called New Eagle. They create custom control systems and automate construction equipment, electric vehicles, and most recently drones using electronics, mechanics, and software. So make sure to check out that episode if you want to hear how they bring custom products to the market and how they handle when the customer is not always right. So before we get started today, I wanted to highlight one reviewer on iTunes, Jeremy the Veteran Artist, who said, I started with the Puppy Cake episode. I really enjoyed listening to this podcast, and I would recommend it to anybody with a startup or thinking about one. The host is very knowledgeable and has guests on who are already walking the path and have so much knowledge to pass on. Plug into this show. Jeremy, thanks a lot for the review. I really appreciate you taking time out to send me a note. I love seeing what other people think of the interviews, and that's really what keeps me going. And now on to the show. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dean Salakas with The Party People. 30 years ago, his mom was Patches the Clown, and she opened up a party store in Australia. Dean and his brother took over this family business, and now they're the online market leader in the space. They're also growing their brick-and-mortar network, and they appeared on Australia's Shark Tank, and have worked with brands like 3M and Avery to introduce new products to the market. So let's get started. Hi, Dean. Thanks for coming on the show today. G'day. How are you, Philip? I'm pretty good. So you have a really interesting story. You took over a family business along with your brother, and it is in the party supply space. And that sounds pretty wild. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah. So um, the whole the whole business started 30 years ago when my mum was a clown catering for kids' parties, actually. So we've got a quite a fun and interesting long history as a business. Um, but then my brother and I took over um, – the business about seven years ago, my, when my mum, when I said she was a clown, she, she then opened up a party store and we took over that business essentially. Um, and uh, at the time, I mean, my mum's always been quite innovative. She got us online in 1998 and um, we kind of followed in her footsteps from there with, with innovating online. And um, we've grown our party store quite significantly since then to having a couple of stores and, and a significant online presence. Yeah, so when you say you've grown your online store, I think you're giving yourself a bit of a disservice. You're one of the largest online stores in Australia for party products, yeah. is that right? Yeah, we're the market leader, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So can you just give us an indication of how much business you do per year? Um, so we do about $2 million per year through that. So it's not huge, but Australia's a little bit of a smaller country. Um, sure. But yeah, we do about $2 million through that, and, um, and and things are sort of going quite well, obviously, continue to grow and, and, and moving up from there. Yeah, and you were on Shark Tank recently in Australia. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? I know you didn't get funded, but uh, I think uh, by reading some of the articles, it sounds like you got what you wanted from it, which was some of the advertising. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, actually, yeah. So the the going on Shark Tank was was a really good experience. I, I did receive an offer, um, and I turned it down. 
Um, but that that itself um, opened up doors um, for me. Like, you know, straight after the show, people, you know, investors were calling, suppliers were calling, customers were obviously uh, through the roof. Um, so it just raised the profile of the business in general. Um, and, you know, it was, it was just a really great PR experience. Um, but also from an investment point of view, while I didn't get investment on the show, um, you know, turning it down made for some good conversations with other investors after that. And subsequently we're, we're now still talking to investors and, um, you know, we're, we're, we're probably in a much better situation than we, we would have been if we had taken a deal on air. Sure. Well, that sounds really great because some of the people I speak with that have been on Shark Tank that weren't able to close a deal, uh, some of them felt like it wasn't maybe as worth their time or they didn't feel like they got the publicity out of as much publicity as they expected anyway. Do you have any indication of why you, you were so successful in kind of leveraging that? Um, I think there's a couple of things. You know, I, I definitely um, went into the show as well prepared as I, I could possibly have been. Um, and definitely I noticed a difference with some other contestants not, not going in there very well prepared and, you know, it's TV. So they'll, they sensationalize everything and they may either make you look really bad or really good. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I went in there with a very high valuation. So watching, um, you know, Dragon's Den and, and, and Shark Tank in the U S, um, typically they tear people apart like me, sure. um, going in with high valuation. So, you know, I had a very deliberate strategy to, mitigate that situation and not go on air and make a fool of myself. Um, but at the same time, try to preserve that valuation and, and justify it. So I spent a lot of time preparing for the show and uh, making sure I, you know, I watched all the U S episodes and mm-hmm. quite a few of the UK episodes as well. And made sure every time there was a question, I made sure for my business, I could answer that question. And, um, you know, if I didn't have a good answer, I, I, I revisited it and I had, you know, friends and family and accountants and all that, review my pitching and, and, and quiz me and really ask difficult questions and make just to make sure that I was, you know, exceptionally well prepared. So I think, um, you know, going on the show, um, you know, I would, I would hope that they didn't have that much um, negative material to, 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 to pull out to, right. to put me so that, so they, instead they, they sort of probably pushed more the angle of, oh, he went on there, he had a great business and he wasn't going to take a, a low, a low offer. Um, and that's the story the media published afterwards. You know, they said, oh, he didn't want to give up his family business. And, um, you know, it's, I guess it's, it's, it's true, but, you know, it's just the picture they paint. A lot of people go on there and just get destroyed or they make it look really bad when it wasn't so bad. Sure. I know for me, I, I went on there and had a great conversation with them. You know, it was great fun. Like you said, it's TV. You have to make it entertaining. So Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I was in there for two hours actually, and, and they show you 10 minutes and, and, and most people that I've spoken to have, have had similar experiences. It just depends on what 10 minutes they pull out. You talked about being prepared. I'm surprised at how many people make up facts to support their case and somehow they get a deal. And then obviously the deal dissolves, you know, when the shark does their yeah. homework. Yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of that <laughs> in the Australia version here. There's, I think out of five people I know that went on the show, only one so far, I've confirmed it's done a deal. Jeez. That, that is, sorry, five that accepted a deal on air, only one right. went through. Right. Well, you know, congrats on that positive experience and uh, that you're able to turn that into a positive, you know, marketing effort for you guys. Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks. It was it was great. So uh, when we initially talked before the show, you mentioned that you were co-developing some products. Um, 
maybe we'll, we'll start with the first one. You're working with 3M to develop some mounting hooks. Now, I'm familiar with the command brand hooks that you can buy at the hardware store here in the States where you peel yeah. off the back and you can kind of stick them to something. So can you kind of elaborate on, on what your role was and how that fit into the store with the products that you sell? Yeah, it's, it's probably a good lead-in from the Shark Tank conversation we just had there because um, they actually called me after seeing me on Shark Tank. Oh, nice. Um, so they saw me on Shark Tank. And actually, I'd met 3M before, but, um, you know, it was more just a, um, you know, hi, how are you type thing. And, that you know, they, they're doing a little bit in the e-commerce space just like us. So I met them through e-commerce channels. But um, the guy had my contact and he saw me on TV. So he called me up and said, oh, I saw you on Shark Tank. That was great. We'd love to work on a product range with you and, and, and launch a, you know, a range of party hanging products. And, um, you know, it was quite, quite, um, quite a good, to- quite good timing, I guess, in, in respect that, um, we'd actually worked with some products actually from the US, um, that, uh, not, not, not branded products, but just, just general products to hang party products. Mm-hmm. And they, they're one of our best sellers because we, cro- you know, every time someone buys, you know, some like a banner or whatever to put up on the wall, they buy something to hang it with. Absolutely. Um, and we, we cross sell that in our checkout, you know, so when people buy a banner, there's, you know, when they get to, you know, the whole you might also like, you know, would you like fries with that style of sure, cross sell sure. you do? Um, and sticky tabs and hooks and things like that are always, uh, you know, the most, you know, common item we put there. So um, it, it was quite a product that I was interested in, in, in talking to 3M about and it just made sense. So we had a few meetings about, the type of products that would work and um yeah i mean they obviously they have a lot of technology which i wasn't i didn't know a lot about 3m before going into their head office and seeing the amazing technology they do there um but they have a lot of technology in, in adhesives and sure. and all those sorts of things so they're about to put together a product which um essentially was ideal for hanging party products on the walls that then obviously didn't damage the walls themselves and I think we came up with a range of about seven products um, that would be suitable. So that's pretty neat. Did they come to you and say, hey, listen, we we need a test bed or we need a retailer to see how well these work? Or what? basically, what did yeah. they, they want from you? And obviously, from your perspective, it was cool because you were able to have a product that maybe nobody else did at the time. Yeah. What were they looking for from their end of the arrangement? So from their end, obviously, they have all the technology to do what 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 we just spoke about there, but um, they they weren't really in the market here in Australia with with any products um, mm-hmm. to to do it. So for them, they were saying, "Look, this is an easy product to come up with because it's just a matter of using the the, the technology we have there with the type of hook and you know where we go, we got a party product." Um, so for them, it was easy to develop the product. Um, sure. And yeah, they they came to me and said, "Look, we think there's a there's a market in this space." We'd, We'd like to pilot with someone, um, you know, get your feedback and, and, and pilot with you and see what your customers think of our products. Um, so, yeah, so they approached me and said, look, can we do a, a pilot to see how this will go? Um, and obviously, like I said, being one of our major selling items, um, it, w- it worked out quite well to, to form nice. that partnership. No, that's pretty exciting. They, at least you got to at least speak to maybe the, you know, the quantity and how it was designed and uh, maybe a little yeah. bit of the marketing. I'm, I'm looking at some of the products online now and, and it's funny that some of them are branded specifically for party, yes, party yeah. use. And they, they, they definitely um, helped us with the marketing and 
Um, yeah, I mean, really interesting from a retailer point of view. I've never really been in the position where, you know, a, a manufacturer has come to me and said, what can we do for you? Um, and, you know, in this case, it was a really good partnership because, you know, they, they, they did all the marketing. They, they helped me with, with, you know, certain funding of Facebook campaigns. Um, you know, we did, we did a lot with them to get their brand out into the market and leverage nice. our customer base and our social following and things like that. Nice. Yeah. So basically help both of you out. Yeah, that's it. And it was a win-win. Wow. That's amazing. So hopefully you guys will get to work with them in the future on some other things or the next time they want to test a product out. Yeah. And those products, I mean, this, this is about two years down the line now. So those products are going really well for us, um, selling quite well. And like I said, it's, it's now a, a best-selling item. Funny enough, you would think a, a hook is a best-selling item for a party shop, I guess. Well, I guess it's the lowest common denominator, right? How are you going to hang up what you're yeah. buying? So, um, yeah. Uh, a lot of the products that I'm seeing on your site are similar to what we have in the States. So I could certainly see how from a manufacturing perspective, they maybe just had to tweak a couple of things and it wasn't a ground up design for them. It was just kind of, like you said, repurposing some of the existing designs into your market. That's it. Yeah. I mean, you guys have Party City over there, yeah. yep. um, which is very similar to what we do here. You also talked about that you had a similar arrangement with Avery and some of their printable labels. Um, yes, I'd say um, I'd say it's similar. I mean, we we were actually we actually went out looking for that ourselves. So um, with that one, it was probably the reverse. We went to them. Um, we we you know obviously identifying that that there's a, a, a trend online in the personalization space sure. um, to have people able to customize labels and custom products and things like that. Um, and Avery being in the labels business, um, you know, kind of see, you know, so I went to them and said, look, is there a way we can do this? Um, cause traditionally they've just been a manufacturer not really doing much on that, um, on that technology side and, and how we can, um, you know, get a product that, that can then be customized mm-hmm. by the customer and, you know, just the whole experience with the party side. So we went to them and said, look, how we, how can we do this? We've been looking for someone in this space and, here in Australia, they're you know they're the leader in 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 labels. So, you know, we 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 approached them and said, look, how can we make this work, and what do we need to do? And um, yeah, I mean, quite a few months went by with with their conversations internally, and you know, we came up with a, a range in the end that was a a product that could be customized by the consumer um, in native tools like Microsoft Word and things like that. So we had a few false starts and what we, what we were finding along the way, you know, we, we just weren't happy with the product that um, was being developed because, you know, we were having a lot of teething issues for the customer where, you know, if their printer didn't line up and sure. all sorts of things that you'd expect from a, a, lab, a, you know, a new solution like this that would be buggy and we just weren't happy with rolling something out that the customer would or could potentially have a lot of issues with. So... We ended up going with a solution where the customer could use their own native tools and use their own printer. So, you know, we came up with a, a Microsoft Word solution where customer could download a template in Word and then they used, you know, obviously a system they already know how to use to do the personalization so they could add their images and all that. And then they just stick it into their printer and adjust the margins and away they go. So, you know, we did that solution with them and they actually provided a level of support as well. So customers can now call them and, and subsequently, so that range, we, we again, we piloted, we did a, a whole test on it and saw how it went. Then we, 
we even assisted them to get it into the other party stores in Australia. And, you know, subsequently they've rolled that, that range out to sort of the more mass mass retailers. Yeah. So in the States, Avery is probably one of the largest players with labels as well. And, yeah. uh, but I've only, you know, seen the classic labels that you put on envelopes or stationary or things like that. And I'm looking through your label products now and you've got things like bag toppers, which are those yeah. those paper pieces of paper that you fold in half and then staple on top of a bag if you're giving out favors for a party or something like that. And that's pretty cool. I don't think we even have that in the state. Yeah, I'm not sure if Avery have taken this product. Obviously, was developed here in Australia with Avery Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to know if they're actually going to roll this out to the states. I assume we're probably test marketing it for them mm-hmm. here. Um, in a smaller market, in a much more contained environment, and then determining if it's successful, I assume they may take it to the States. But you're right, there was a whole range of products from, you know, all the different labels to, like you said, even the bags and the headers. Um, so you can get the whole, you know, the whole party bag thing personalized. Um, trying to think what other products. There's a bunch of products that they did do with us. Yeah, I saw some labels for bottles of wine and things that were curved. Yeah, place cards, I think, was another yeah. one that they did, you know, for name cards for the tables and things like that. So, yeah, there was a bunch of products. So, while we're on the topic, can you speak to maybe any trends that you see that are going on in your industry now? You mentioned that people like to personalize some of their own items and do things themselves. Is that where you see pieces of the industry going? It's actually a trend I noticed in the States. I do travel to the States because my wife's uh, from the US and I've you now took her over here to Australia and keeping her here. <laughs> but we get, we go over there a lot. So I noticed the trend of personalization in the States first quite a few years ago. And, um, definitely, you know, it was something that caught my eye and I thought, look, this just makes sense to the customer. The customers all, you know, you go on Instagram and, and, and Facebook and people always got their fancy, you know, lolly bars and things done up with their personalized, you know, lolly bags sure. and things like that. And I just thought that just makes sense for from a business point of view that people are looking for personalization in in party as you know, obviously other industries are in the same boat, but um in party as well. And um you know, so I guess it's something, yeah, I definitely noticed the trend. Um and and, and it's getting more and more. I think people are just in general looking to have more and more unique style of events. Um, you know, I guess the whole world is 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 sort of embracing um, you know, people being unique and, sure. and you know, customizing individualism yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, it's no longer cookie cutter like it was in the eighties where if you're going to have a first birthday party, especially in Australia, you had probably one range to pick from right. at every retailer. Right. Um, so everyone had the same birthday party where now <laughs> you have so much more choice. And so, yeah, I'm definitely seeing that, that, that whole personalization space in a lot of industries becoming more mainstream. I mean, uh, there's a couple of Australian companies sort of making uh, big waves internationally. I'm not sure if you've heard of Shoes of Prey, where people can personalize their shoes to all the colors and things like that. Wow. There's a company called Mon Purse, which is another one where people can personalize their handbags. Um, you know, so this whole personalization thing is is going to be sort of more prominent, I think, in the future. Wow. For our wedding, my wife and I got married three years ago and we did all our own wedding invitations and placeholders for the tables and everything. We ended up getting them online, but I think that was the same trend is because we were able to save just a ton of money by doing everything ourselves. Yeah. And I think there's also that, that, that other trend, you know, where it's similar to like cooking at the moment, you know, where people can buy, um, you know, people want to 
be a chef. You know, they want to cook at home. They've seen all these cooking shows on TV, so they want to actually cook. But a lot of people can't cook. So, <laughs> so but they don't want to buy takeout sure. or, 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 you know, microwavable meals. So, you know, there's now this whole, you know, movement towards, you know, buying the, the package, if you like, online or whatever that has all the ingredients sure. so you can cook that, you know. So it's almost it's like you don't have yeah. to work at all. Yeah, it's just a kit that you, you go and do. And I th- and parties kind of the same as well. I think a lot of people um, would love to do their own invitations from scratch and would love to um, do all that stuff, you know, but people I think more and more there's a lot of people out there that, you know, probably aren't, aren't gifted in doing that on their own. So they're looking for something where they don't just want to out of the box and, and, and cookie cutter, but they also want – to create something and so there's a lot of that more packaging and um, DIY party sort of trends happening. That's interesting. So are you able to capitalize on that at all? For example, if someone buys a dinosaur-themed play setting, does your e-commerce website recommend other dinosaur-themed items that kind of go with that? So in theory, they could kind of plan yes. out all the parts? Yeah, it does, yeah. So if you buy if you buy something, then we, we, we every product that we put on our website, we actually – We'll, we'll link it to other products which we suggest to the customer um, that they might like. And then there's also an algorithm um, setting in there which, you know, the whole, you know, sort of learning, um, digital learning where the, the site looks at if someone buys a dinosaur balloon and they're also buying dinosaur cups and plates, then it knows that, well, that's a good item to show the customer when they buy a dinosaur balloon. That's pretty sharp. I didn't know that was available in a roll-your-own e-commerce site. I thought only Amazon and some of the larger online merchants had that capability. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? Uh, it's, it, is, it is becoming more standard mm-hmm. today. I think yeah, in the past it was probably something you had to be very fancy and come up with some sort of algorithm. But it, in a lot of the, the website platforms today that are out there, it, it is quite standard. That must work really well for you since your catalog must have thousands of items. Yeah, we have 25,000 items, yeah. Jeez. So we're, like I said, very similar to a party city in, in size and, and range. Um, our stores are you know, similar size to the, the size of a party city as well. So what came first? I guess you said you, you took on the online e-commerce space and then you expanded to brick and mortar? Uh, actually, we had the bricks and mortar first. Okay. Um, so the, 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 my parents started the store and, and that store was sort of a, a little party shop, not, not too big. Um, they identified the opportunity online. So they, you know, decided to put together a website and back in the, you know, 98, I think they started putting together a website, you know, that cost us about 10 grand, which was crazy at, at in those sure. days. I mean, my family was asking, what the hell are we doing? Why are we spending 10 grand on a website? What a waste of money. Um, so it was back then it was, you know, what the hell, but my mom, you know, obviously she's, she's stuck by her, 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 you know, entrepreneurial spirit there and, and decided to go with it. And, and that she saw the opportunity that people all around the, the country would have access to products that, you know, that, that we provide in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, obviously she was right and, and that took off. You've grown to two stores now and yep. you're looking to expand even further. Can you talk a little bit about the, maybe the reasoning behind that? Someone would say, well, you know, that might just be distracting because your online business isn't the same as running brick and mortar. Um, yeah, I get this question a lot, actually. And um, especially right now, like obviously after Shark Tank, we're talking to a lot of investors and I get the comment always, you know, why don't you focus on the online, get rid of the bricks and mortar 
and be a pure play online business and that's a much more scalable and larger market. Um, and I guess a couple of things that I, I, um, I, I, I disagree with um, the notion that, you know, particularly in my industry, that we should be a pure play online retailer um, for a couple of reasons. So the first one is I think the future for online pure play is going to be um, – I would say quite quite rocky. I, I, don't, I think a lot of businesses have become successful online just because of um, the, the benefits that online gives. But I think more toward, you know, looking to the future, there's a massive advantage of having bricks and mortar and online and being good at both. Um, you know, without I don't want to spend ages sort of going through the exact sort of mechanics and economics of why, but, you know, to give you a sort of a very quick example, you know, say on Google, you're competing for, you know, position on Google, and and you know you can you can pay either pay more than someone else, or um, if your relevance is good and your your quality of your your ad is good, then Google give you an additional boost. So it's it's a marketplace essentially for advertising, and if you're a business that's driving just online sales only from that ad, you're limiting to one channel to to to, to drive your sales where. If you're a multi-channel retailer and you've got bricks and mortar and online, then that ad itself is going to get you those online sales just like anyone else, but it's also going to drive traffic to your stores. Um, so you're getting a double revenue stream from the one ad where your competitors aren't mm. if they're pure play. So you'll have a distinct advantage, which means you can bid more so you can outbid them. Um, you, can, you get better rankings organically and just naturally you'll be able to beat them in that space. So I think the future for a lot of industries and particularly mine is going to be a, a multi-channel retailer rather than a pure play market leader. Yeah. Um, so that, that's my view. No, and I, I can definitely agree with what you're saying regarding ranking on Google because they prefer brick and mortar stores as well. in some of the search results, especially yes. if it's local to you. So they'll give you a organic boost. Yeah. And more people will talk about sure. you and review you and things like that. So there's just a whole, I guess a whole ecosystem and I see the whole online ecosystem favoring people with bricks and mortar. Um, so you'll be able to compete better as a multi-channel than you would a pure play. Do you find that your target audience is also responding to brick and mortar more because maybe sometimes they need something right then and there and they don't have time to wait for shipping? Um, not necessarily for that reason because with online, you know, we now offer three out. You know, people can order now and get it two hours later. Um, oh, wow. So we offer that that level of service that you know, people are now starting to become come to expect rather than go, you know, you said, wow, yeah. I'd like to think that was the expect, you know, the, the view of the customer. But I think more and more people are seeing that as what they expect rather than, you know, an impressive level of service. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, we do that. And obviously that's, that's great that we offer that service because a lot of our competitors don't. But I definitely know that's a trend in the U.S. to, to, to move towards, you know, getting people stuff when they want it right away. Um, and, and, you know, we're trying to follow that here. But I think the bigger factor with the bricks and mortar is, especially with party, maybe not so much other industries, but even fashion and things like that, people still want to try stuff on, particularly with parties. People are styling, you know, it's like interior design. Mm -hmm. I mean, if someone said, here's a wallpaper and you can buy it online, that's probably a little harder than going in somewhere and seeing the wallpaper with the couch, you know, like Ikea, I guess. Right, you know, absolutely. You, you guys got Ikea, yep. there, right? Like Ikea is still around and it's, it, anyone can buy any of that stuff online and probably for cheaper. But, you, you know, Ikea, you can go there, you can see it in a room, you can put things together, say, does this match that? Um, you can work out what, what you're going to, you know, what, what you're going to have with what. 
and then um, you can go and buy it all. And, and the same, I think, is with parties, that a lot of people are going to want to style their party, so they're going to want to pick up these napkins and put it with those plates and, you know, get this, you know, bunting and see how that looks with it and, you know, style their event. And, and that's very difficult to do online because it's very hard to get a – even though you can have as much information for the customer as possible and videos and everything, um, it's still very hard to get a sense of what the color is exactly – what the size of it is exactly and all that sort of stuff. So when people come to your store, do you provide a different experience than you would online? And by that, I mean, are your employees trained to maybe help customers out to kind of help plan their party for them? Do you have like party planners that that are also associates or do you provide any additional services? We do actually. Um, So say our store, yeah, you get a much sort of high level of customer service in the store. Um, it's something we're just actually sort of struggling with and trying to replicate online and offline and, and provide the same level of service for both. Um, but, you know, we're finding that, that that's probably a challenge for us at the moment. You know, we, we, we've, we've used things like we have live chat um, and, you know, sure. people might disagree with me here, but we actually turned off our live chat because we found that customers were asking questions um customers were getting lazy and the, the actual cost to us to maintain live chat was um, we were finding not beneficial to the value we were providing to the customer for the service. Um, yet when you think about it, customers come in store and talk to our service assistants. So um, it's one of those things that we're actually struggling with from a business model perspective, trying to replicate the online, the offline, but certainly like you said, yeah, the, the, the service they get in store is, is, you know, excellent. They can come in talk to someone and, if they've got no clue about organizing a party, we'll help them out with it. Well, you know, certainly the people that come to your store in person are probably have a much higher chance of converting into a buyer than the people that are visiting your website and typing into a chat box. Yeah, absolutely. And so I could I could definitely see why you'd want to spend more time with people in store. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I think the other thing is with online, you um, you know, things are very price sensitive online. Where in the store, sure. like you said, they they've come to your store. They're, they're, the price is not as big of an issue. It's more about getting what they came to get. Um, they've made the right. trip. You know, if they're going to save fifty cents by going down the road, it's not really worth it. Um, right. So yeah, so people tend to to convert more in store. All good points that we can probably apply to some of our own products. Do you feel like as you went through this journey with your brother that you had some unique skill set that that helped you along, that you know made things easier for you, or maybe gave you this advantage that other people didn't have? I think um, I think there's probably a couple of things. I guess first of all, being two brothers running the business rather than um, a single owner certainly is, is is a big help. You know, having a business partner there that can pick you up when you when you're um, you know when you struggle with something. So we've we've had our had our turn at, at, at doing long hours, right? Um, but you know, it might be one or the other because we both have different skill sets. So getting onto your question about you know. What skills do we have that helped us along the way? I'd say it's our complementary skills. So I come from an analytical background. Um, so, you know, I'm very technically savvy and that's that's the skill set I bring to the two of us. And, and, and my brother's a very good people manager. So between the two of us, we were able to obviously use our strengths. And, um, you know, I was very fortunate. I also came from a supermarket background. So, you know. You understood retail we, really well. Understood retail, but I think the hard thing with being a startup, I mean, we weren't exactly a startup, but with being a small business is, um, you know, the tools that you need to do things are expensive. 
you know, the big, the big companies have the tools. And one of the advantages we were able to develop those tools in-house with, you know, things like Excel and Access, um, Microsoft Excel, Microsoft Access and things sure. like that, being able to actually create efficiencies through without, you know, putting in a whole big software, really developing the, the software ourselves through a tool like Excel or Access. So to give you an idea, like we, we, we have a lot of Excel spreadsheets all over the place which automate a lot of processes we do. Um, I built our whole ordering inventory forecasting system from scratch in Access, um, which, you know, forecasts how we want it to forecast. I probably could have bought something off the shelf for a few million dollars, but, um, you know, being a small business, you just don't have that kind of money. So we, we, we built it ourselves. Right. Now, I'm familiar with that. I worked for some small businesses that basically ran off of Excel. And then when I put on my other hat, when I worked for IBM for a little bit, it was kind of a nightmare because you try to go in and... Uh, <laughs> And to help the business take the next step and you realize everything was just custom coded to that business. And yes. Yeah. And so it was really hard to get them onto a standardized solution. But you know, at the end of the day, if it's working and you're happy with the price that you paid for it, then that's it. But I think that's the hardest thing for a small business is to grow and, and grow organically. And, you know, it's almost like where you want to be, it's too expensive where you, where you, how you want the business to run. Um, and you're always in that situation. You're like, oh, I wish we could do this and this and this and I wish we could manage this better and, you know, we need this to make that better. But sometimes having that is just not cost-effective to do it, you, especially when you're, you're early stage and you're not turning over enough revenue. You can't afford all the fancy systems and tools and you can't put the time in to develop those things. So you, you have to grow organically and I think that's probably a skill, you know, those skills in, in terms of having – you know, I was a subject matter expert at, at, at Australia's largest supermarket here in Excel. So having that skill set definitely was an advantage. You talked about some of the standard things that businesses struggle as they grow. I'm huge on doing things myself. I'm also yeah. really analytical. I can code if I need to. And so... Yeah, yeah. You sound like me. And I started everything from scratch and maybe six months into it, I realized that I was spending 20%, 30% of my time fixing the hooks that didn't work quite right. And the little annoying things that didn't transfer over and the, the hiccups and the, because I you know did everything myself. And so there yeah, was, yeah. there was some point that I had to say, you know what, I'm just going to buy a template or I'm going to buy something that's kind of half done. That's a middle of the road solution. And as much as I hate to do it, because I absolutely refuse to pay for some of these SaaS you know, yeah. software as a service products, but just found myself spending way too much time on the nuts and bolts instead of the, you know, the bigger picture. How do you balance that, especially as a technical person? So I think we've done that. We've done, we've been through that process so many times that you, you, you described there. It's, it's a really good example of how, you know, so the life cycle of, of a business in, in, in that, you know, in that technical area. And we've gone through that so many times. It's almost like we, we just know how it works from now on. Like we, when we have to do something, I always start with an Excel spreadsheet, start with a, a prototype, if you like, um, a test system, whatever you want to call it. Um, we always start off doing it ourselves and that allows us to get, you know, understanding of what we really need. Cause you know, you, you don't always get it. You, you never get it right. First time. Um, right. Like you said, there's always bugs and things that you, you didn't set up right or you didn't think of a scenario that, that comes up and you find yourself spending a lot of time fixing issues. And so you do get to a point eventually where you think you probably know enough about what that system you've developed is and does that, you know, you can probably more comfortably go to market and then ask, you know, and, and buy something out of, out off the shelf. Because like you said, I'm in the same boat as, as you were there where 
I'm constantly going in having to fix things and I think I've got better things to do with my time than sit there and fix little Excel problems, you know, that, right. that, 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 you know, we could just buy something. So eventually you get to a point where you just think, you know what, it's going to be cheaper to buy something out of the shelf here. But the best thing is you know what you've grown so that you can probably support your revenue can support a tool like that. And you have a better understanding of what you need, right? You got a better understanding of what you need. And it's almost necessary because you can't grow as a business if I'm continually being IT support for everyone in my company, you know? So right. um, we do, you do have to start thinking about simplifying your role as, as a CEO. So while, like you said, it might be better for you to develop a particular tool to do something, just by getting it out of the box and spending that little bit more and buying a system, then you take that complexity out of your role because you just, you just don't have enough t- time in the day to do everything you need to do. So slowly, bit by bit, we've been evolving where those things that I'd built early on when we started the business up, they're starting to disappear and integration start filling the gap. I think also we've been in a fortunate space where we've been an early adopter in the tech space, you know, with, with online and, and a growing business. So, um, you know, back in 98 when we launched the website, most of the tools we needed didn't even exist. So we had to build them from scratch. I had to build my own, you know, our, our site was completely custom built back then. Um, sure. Where now, Static HTML. Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was, which was fun. And and then, you know, now you've got things like, I mean, we're on Magento now with a website. So we've been able mm-hmm. to grow to a point where we've gone, you know what, well, now the tools exist that we need and they, they come out of the box, 90% of them. So we were able to move to that. And, you know, that whole process of getting from a custom built to a, to a software out of the box and with a whole bunch of customizations. By the time we got there, we had a very good understanding of what we needed. So like all these little Excel tools, when I go and say, okay, cool, let's go and buy something out of the box, I know every requirement, we just go through our Excel tool and say, these are all the things we need the, the new system to do and go to market and go to the guy, you know, go and say, look, this is what we need. And let's say you get a, a logistics system that's that's one that I've been working on more recently because I built my logistics system again from scratch. Um, we know everything we need, and then there's the the bits that the out of the box solution doesn't do, which you can customize. But at least sure. um, when you implement that new solution, you're you're much further down the track and much more knowledgeable about what you need than going to market and looking at a bunch of tools that you might need and not knowing which one's the best because you haven't used any of them yet. You know. So speaking about tools, are there any that you found to be helpful in your day-to-day job? And maybe not anything specific to your industry, but just in general, things that make your life easier? Uh, I think my most favorite one at the moment is Asana. Have you heard of that, Asana? Yes, yeah. I have. Oh, it's my favorite. It's, it's, it's probably the most recent and favorite implementation we've done. Um, so Asana is a task management tool, like you would know. Um, but maybe the listeners don't. So it's a task management tool, a bit like uh, I think there's a couple out there called there's, there's Jira from Atlassian. They've got one and there's a bunch of others. But Asana was a, is a free tool depending on what level you're using it. But for most startups, it'll be a free tool. For us, it's a free tool and we're a little larger. But it's a great task management tool and you can assign tasks to people. And I just found it's made our life so much easier, especially me as a, as a manager. You know, Everything was managed in emails before and I had to constantly follow people up. Where's this at? You know, is that finished? Yep, who was yep. who's dealing with it? I, I, I thought you were dealing with it and they thought I was dealing with it and stuff just fell through the cracks. And with something like Asana, you know, we've created some rules around how, it, how it's supposed to be used. But, you know, obviously it's a tool where you can create a, a task for someone, assign it to someone. So whoever's assigned it, they're in charge of it then. 
So, you know, there's always an owner of a, of a particular – everyone – there's always someone responsible for some task to get it to completion. And I've just found that has really made my life easier. I can sleep better at night knowing that everything's in there and someone's working on it. You know, I've even got a, a couple of employees that report to me were going through a very difficult period with their role where they were just overly stressed and it was becoming a bit of a problem and I was struggling to figure out how I deal with the stress level in their roles. Um, and Asana changed that overnight. They they felt more in control. All their tasks were online. I, I, I work with them to continue to monitor their priorities. At any time, I can jump in there and see where they're at with what tasks. So it's been really um, a really great little tool that we've implemented recently and would definitely recommend a tool like that to any business that has, you know, a couple of people that are managing a project. Yeah, I was going to say, I, all I need to do is get some employees, yeah. <laughs> then I'm set. <laughs> yeah, but I even use it for things like my bookkeeper, and my accountant, you know, like instead nice. of following up, where's my tax return? I will sure. bugger that, create a task, tax return, get it done, put a due date on it and, up, and assign it to them. And then you get notified when they miss the due dates. <laughs> so, you, you know, you follow them up. Hey, what are you doing? It's sitting in your asana. What's going on? Or, or, right. or they generally miss it less, you know. So it's just definitely been a great, it's a great tool to use just in, in general. I have to keep that in mind. I think they're developing some tools at the moment. I've seen a couple of startups actually because I'm obviously in the investment space now trying to get investment. And some people are developing, developing some tools that work with your email uh, which I think would be awesome if you could convert those emails direct to tasks in in a in a tool like Asana. Right. Yeah. And that's how we used to manage a lot of our tasks in my last job in engineering, where we had spreadsheets for action items and things like yeah. that. And it, you basically were a, a spreadsheet wrangler. Yeah. For half the time, just keeping it updated. Oh yeah. So that's what <laughs> I love about this. You don't have to do any of that because I was the same. We used to do some. A new, every now and then you'd start a new project of some kind and say, oh, look, I'm going to put this project in a spreadsheet just so I can manage it better. With right. this, everything's in there, even little tasks, you know. Anything I want to ask anyone to do, instead, like I'll ask them, usually I'll ask them in person, but if, if I think, oh, shit, I don't want to have to follow that up, I just create a task and assign it to them, and then I'm done. Don't have to think about it ever again. Yeah, perfect. Cool. If only the tasks completed themselves, right? That's it. That's the last it's step. When we need a when we get robots that do the task for you. <laughs> so uh, maybe while we're talking about things that worked out really well, do you have any like success stories or stories about like your biggest high? You know, people will listen to some of these interviews and say, "Well, that sounds really straightforward, and it might be oversimplified." You know, maybe we skimmed over some of the biggest lows that you've had and some of the biggest highs because, at least in my experience, the to get to where you are today wasn't a, definitely wasn't a straight line, and there's going to be some bumps along the road. So, how can you maybe share some of the some of the worst bumps and maybe some of the highest highs that you've had? Yeah, sure. So, if 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 I went through all of the bumps and <laughs> if I went <laughs> no. through all of the bumps, we'd be here all day. There's a lot of bumps, you know. And oh man, it's it's you know, I probably you probably it's a good point you bring up because you know often. You know, talking to you about it, it sounds like, oh, he's had a lot of success and it's all been really easy. It, it hasn't been easy. There's been a lot of failures. There's been a lot of mistakes made along the way. Probably some of the biggest failures we, we, we've we had along the way. So we implemented a new store, new bricks and mortar store. We were going to move the internet. I won't go into this for, for hours, but, you know, we moved it into a new store. We moved the internet operation and, you know, that whole process was 
more difficult than we anticipated. We moved at a busier time than we anticipated because we were late in moving and it was just a disaster. Mm -hmm. And then we struggled to keep up with capacity. And and at the time we were growing, so our internet sales were going through the roof and we just struggled capacity-wise. We just weren't planned well enough. So a lot of the time when we've looked at the bumps along the road, it's just been due due to poor planning um, more than anything. We've just failed to look ahead and see what was coming and and adequately, you know, mitigate the risks or the issues that were that that were there if we had to sat down and spent five minutes thinking about it. So we've had a lot of those. Would you say is it's because maybe sometimes you get lost in the day to day and you you're focused on maybe making sure that, you know this particular issue has been solved for today and maybe there's not anybody tasks with looking forward? Yeah, or... I think it's nearly always because we just too focused on getting jobs done rather than sitting sure. back and planning. We, we actually have more of a, I mean, like like we were talking earlier about growing as a business and, and adapting as we've grown, we, we now have much more more planning activities we do, you know, because we identified every time we had a failure, we'd look back and say, why? What happened? How did we miss that? How did we, you know, fail to plan that correctly and, and make sure we put something in place to make sure that never happens again? You know, some some failures are acceptable and that's a strange thing. I, Part of learning. Well, also sometimes we take calculated risk, you know, and not everything can, you know, sometimes you might take a risk that 80% chance you'll succeed and 20% chance you won't. And that 20% happens. And I don't think you can plan for that 20% sometimes. So often we've looked back and said, you know what, based on the information we had, like hindsight's great, but based on the information sure. we had at the time, it was the right decision. We, we just, we just, you know, the, the, the yeah. chips just didn't fall our way with it. And you know, often we're wrong. We just, we, we were wrong, but we couldn't have made a better decision based on the information we had at the time. I mean, as a CEO of a company, especially growing, there's so much uncertainty. You're making decisions on no information. Um, right. And you have to make the best decision you, you can with the information you have. So, so often we've, we've said, you know, look, the chips did fall, but also on the flip side, a lot of the time it's just been, look, we didn't, we didn't think enough about that problem. We didn't spend enough time to properly analyze it talk to the people in our company that know more about the role than we do as CEOs and make sure we we made the right decision. So often it just, yeah, like you said, came down to we were in the detail and we were complacent because we didn't think we'd have any issues and then issues came up and, and, and you know, you you get bitten and you look back and say, what did we do wrong? I mean, I, I, I'm so guilty of it personally as well. I It's almost like you you just don't want to deal with some problems when you're on, you know, you're on, you've got a lot of work to do, you're really busy and you know there's a little problem there, but you just think, oh, it'll be fine. It won't, it won't happen. The chances are it won't happen. And it, it always happens. It, it always, that problem that you think won't <laughs> right. happen will happen. And you just ignore it and you put your head in the set. It's, it's just so easy to do. It's something that, I don't know, I, like I feel like I'm guilty of it. I always, every time we have those problems, I think, oh, I, I, th- I thought about that, but I didn't, I didn't explore it, you know, and I just kept moving forward instead of thinking about, hey, what, what would happen if that happens? So. Yeah, we've we've had a lot of bumps along the way. I probably haven't been very specific to you, but it's interesting that you say all that because you know you're talking about making decisions with information that you have, and ultimately, not making a decision is a decision. If you stall because you don't have enough data or you feel like you're not ready, that is a decision. And some people believe I I certainly believe that I wish that I made more decisions faster because I'm in the other end of the camp where I try to plan for all the other contingencies and in reality yeah. then I don't I don't get anything kicked off. Yeah. I, I do like the saying um 
there's no such thing as a bad decision. There's just a bad decision making process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something we kind of live by. We, we will analyze, are we making a bad decision here? Well, hang on. Have we actually gone through the right steps to make this decision? And if we have and we've got all the information we need, well, we're making it on the assumptions that we have and that's all we've got to go by. So let's not dwell on this decision, whether it is or isn't right, because at the end of the day, we we understand everything we need to know to make the decision. We just have to have to have an opinion, especially like in, in, in starting a product or whatever. I mean, most people don't have all the information. If, if you could go out and survey 100% of the um, country to find that if your product's going to survive, you'd, you'd be, you'd be right. fine. But no one ever has that luxury. Often you, you just think this is a great idea and you got to, and that's what, that's what being an entrepreneur is about. And often you, you need to make decisions, you know, w- with little information, because like you said, you don't have the time to go and figure that all out. You have to cut corners and, and get to market quicker. Well, that's some really good advice, and that's going to roll into my next question, which is if you had to give one tip or one bit of advice to somebody that was starting their own business, maybe a product-based business, maybe you're giving advice to your younger self, You know, what would that be to kind of help them along? It's probably a bit of a broad question. Like I get asked a lot, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a startup. How should I, how should I grow it? You know, how, what, what should I do? And I always tell people, you know, focus on a very specific area, start niche, and own that niche. You know what I mean? So whatever you do, you got to be the best at something. Um, yep. If you're just average at everything, you know, you're never going to survive in, in the market because because there's a lot of people that are average at everything. Um, you know, I use I use the example of you know like in online. If you're actually if you're in my business and you're trying to compete on the word party supplies, good luck. You know what I mean? Because everyone is trying to compete on party supplies. Every party store in the country is is trying to own that keyword. But if you're sure. a startup and you're trying to compete, you know, in party, well, you really need to be very, very specific. You know, start with first birthday party supplies Sydney, you know, and own that. Be the best at doing kids parties, you know, first birthday parties in Sydney. You know, have a have the best range, have the best whatever in that category, and then you can beat people on that because the generalists that are that are trying to be good at everything, they're, they're not going to have that specific targeting and you know, product range and all that. So you can beat them there. And that's what I say to everyone is I say, look, start niche and start small and own whatever space you're planning to be in. Make sure you own it and make sure you're different enough from the competition that you stand out. That's awesome advice. Thanks a lot for that, Dean. That's right. Uh, where can people go to buy some products from you? Let's say we're in Australia and we're, we're uh, throwing a party. Yeah, I, I definitely encourage people after this, you know, to check out our website. It's uh, www.thepartypeople.com com.au. I think you could even, if you accidentally go to the .com, I think you still get to us anyway. So yeah, check us out online and, and have a look around. We're on all the social stuff. So feel free to jump on our social pages on Facebook and just go to our website, check out what my logo looks like. There's a lot of the party people brands around, but um, around the world. But if you check out what my logo looks like, and you jump on, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we're on all of those. Incidentally, while I'm on that, I think another good tool for people is uh, Hootsuite. I don't know if you've heard of Hootsuite. Yep. Great little tool yep, yep. to push your stuff out to social media, especially if you're starting a new product. Definitely, I find with new items, like when we did you know, the two launches with 3M and Avery, social was our first marketing channel we, we went to because we, you know, we thought that, you know, trying to advertise on search engines and stuff, no one's going to be looking for what you're selling if it's new. So we had to educate people and social was the best place for that and getting influences and things like that on social to, 
bring awareness to that product was was great. So definitely check us out on social stuff and see what we're doing. We're on just about everything. Great. And you've got two brick-and-mortar stores? Yeah, two bricks-and-mortar stores uh, in Sydney. Well, Dean, thanks again for coming on the show. It was my pleasure having you on. Thanks again for sharing all your wisdom with online commerce. After I was browsing your catalog, I thought, man, that's a, that's a challenge keeping that many products in stock. Yeah, it's fun. It's good fun business. <laughs> and that's all I've got for today. Thanks for listening. I put all the links that we covered under the show notes posted on the productstartup.com slash episode 15. One of the most difficult parts of podcasting for me is that sometimes it feels that I'm talking to myself. So as an only child, I can say that keeping myself entertained does come second nature to me. But the real issue is that I don't get much feedback on what I put out. So what do you think of the format? Does it work? I've been focused on only getting the founders of other physical products on the show. I've also been pitched a lot by prospective guests that work in the arts, like authors and developers of online mobile apps. I've resisted bringing them in because I really want this to be the hub for launching physical products, DIY style. And I think that's what differentiates the product startup from maybe some of the other small business podcasts or the entrepreneurship type podcasts out there. I also want to make sure that I'm giving you what you want. So please let me know what you think in the show notes or hit the Ask Philip button on the site or leave me an iTunes review, uh, use a carrier pigeon, whatever. Should I broaden the guests that we have on the show to get a variety of perspectives or should I keep a laser focus on creators of physical products? So if you could, please take 15 seconds right now to let me know. Join me next time as I speak with Luke Lucas from Foddy's. Luke owns and runs a startup food production business called Foddy's, and they specialize in the production of low FODMAP, gluten-free, and other allergy-friendly food that they sell online. Luke also quit his career in finance last year to open a cafe and retail outlet, and he's worked full-time in the business ever since. What a really great test bed, being able to validate food in a cafe People are essentially paying you to test your product and then you're selling what works through your online store. I'm also going to experiment with putting out episodes in higher frequency. So tune in in one week to hear that episode. I really appreciate your support. I read all the comments and questions you guys put online. So thanks again and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast with your host, Philip Belitza. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit theproductstartup.com, your guide to getting there. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.